In preparation for the message this morning, we're going to be reading from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When God speaks, do you listen? Do you hear what he's trying to say to you? Is the door open? Or have you effectively closed the door? This is James' message uh, for us this morning. He uh, brings us to the word of God and, and what proper listening to God's word really involves. What it takes, what it means, what it does. What proper listening to God's word really involves? Well, first, it involves an attitude of of receptivity. Verse 19. Dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Everyone should be quick to listen. Now, why would James say this? Well, he says it because we're usually not quick to listen. We're quick to do any number of things, but not to listen to his word. We're quick to become emotional. We're quick to, to uh, fly off the handle. We're, we're quick to be superior-minded. We're, we're quick to be judgmental. Quick to be, you fill in the blank. But when it comes to God's word, quick? No, not usually. This was true back then, and it's true today. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say, uh, I don't get anything out of reading the Bible. I can't make head or tails of it. Don't bother me with it because I just don't get it. I'll come to church. I'll, I'll do the religious thing. But the Bible, no, seriously. Not for me. 
Well, folks, if you haven't figured it out yet, you cannot expect Scripture to be easy to understand. It is alien to us. It comes into our carnal lives with a message of of transformation and holiness. Neither of which do we appreciate. This is what James is talking about here. The righteous life. A life transformed by holiness. It's a message of, of transformation and holiness. The problem is we're we're predisposed to reject the Word of God. In sin, we reject it. That's our natural predisposition. It's all we've ever known. Our own carnal, self-driven desires. The Word of God, His truth, it, it's alien to us. It speaks another language. The the two oppose each other. The one is natural and carnal. The other is, is supernatural and spiritual. One residing in our own sinful hearts and the other coming from the heart of God. Olympians don't just walk onto the playing field and excel. It takes years and years of investment. Effort, practice, honing, chiseling their skills. They sacrifice. All because when they get there, they want to be able to achieve. It's true with anything, isn't it? Uh, Soccer. Just had the World Cups. Typing. I do pretty good with a keyboard. Had about, I don't know, six, eight weeks of it in seventh grade, I suppose. Kathy, on the other hand, she gets her hands on that keyboard, and I mean, you can't even see the fingers move. Why? What's the difference? Well, she invested time and effort. I did maybe, like I said, six, eight weeks. Riding a unicycle. How many of you can ride a unicycle? Matt can, next week, here, be ready for it. By the way, I didn't recognize the guy in the middle on that wedding. Who was that? In the suit? The other day I saw a guy riding a a unicycle down the the sidewalk. You know, you you see a bike, you kind of, oh, yeah. See a guy on a unicycle, you go, okay. I'm going to look at this. This guy hadn't really arrived yet, but he was working on it, and that's the point. He was working on it. Without time, without effort, without practice, nothing worthwhile happens in our lives. It doesn't matter the arena. And to do it with excellence, will. there's no easy road. I could go on, but I think you get the point. If you're going to understand the Word of God, it's going to cost you. It's going to take time. It's going to take discipline. There's no room for a a reserved listener. When it comes to God's Word, we've got to listen with receptivity. Uh, James contrasts our receptivity to 
the word and our receptivity to the world. Uh, Verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Uh, Again, the idea of receptivity. Accept the word. But James just doesn't say accept it. He says accept it humbly. Isn't that the word he uses there? You see, we have to come to a point where we realize we need his word. We need his truth in our lives. We need the word of God. Have you come to this realization yet? This humble receptivity can't happen when we're caught up in the pride of self and the way of the world. Hey, I'm, I'm good just the way I am. I, I don't need to change. I had one fellow tell me, uh, God's going to have to accept me the way I am. This is who I am. This is what I am. And anybody who wants a relationship with me, they're just going to have to accept me the way I am. Fact is, uh, godly change has a repulsive edge to it. It's counter to who we are in our pride. And we can continue on in our pride. Or we can humbly realize our need of his word. You and I, we need God's word. We need his truth. We need the change that it brings. That's what salvation is all about. Change. And this is exactly why James puts the word of God against the backdrop of the world. You see, even in James's day, the, the world had a, a magnetic appeal. It pulled on people's affections. It, it, it attracted them. But it's a wrong attraction. a a fruitless attraction. And it's an attraction that moves us away from God. Will H. Houghton offers this bit of advice. Heed the exhortation of the one who with all the passion of his heart urges you to lay hold of the Bible until the Bible lays hold of you. That's good, isn't it? Lay hold of the Bible until the Bible lays hold of you. This is the passion of James' heart for us. What is it that has a grip on you? The world or the Word? The one brings you to God. The other further distances you away from Him. Moving to the next paragraph... uh, we see that it wraps itself around the idea of obedience. If you spend much time studying God's Word, you, you know that it, it's so interlinked with obedience. Faith and obedience are linked. Here's a, an example of what I'm talking about, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those words, do what it says. That's obedience. That equals obedience. 
Another premise that may not sit well with us. But it is what we're called to do in faith, in our faith to Jesus Christ. Believers are to be obedient, obeying the word of God. Why? Because it's what brings his blessing into our lives. Most people, said Mark Twain, are bothered by those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I've always noticed that the, noticed that the passages of Scripture which trouble me most are those which I do understand. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourself. Why does, why does James say that? Deceive yourselves. Because we're into playing religious games. We love religious games. We, we love it with the church. We love it with him. We love it with his word. Attracted to the world, deceived. You and me, really? Yes, this is who James is talking to. You and me. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the people out there. He's talking to us in here. Do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Let the word of God lead your life. Dr. James C. Denson tells about when he was visiting the British Museum. He says, I stood there before two of the most ancient biblical manuscripts in the world moved nearly to tears. Behind me, Hundreds of people gaped at Beatles' memorabilia in the adjacent display area. You got the picture? Hundreds of people. One man. Those clamoring for the way of the world. One man standing before the Word of God. Question. Which group would you be in? Pretty heavy, isn't it? James's theology is heavy. It comes right down here to where we live. It always does. Why? Because down here is where theology is important. Yes, it's quite a picture. The, the one man in the crowd. Few of us are receptive to the Word of God. We're too busy. We're too busy playing church. We're, we're too busy with worldly lives, too busy with, with, with sports and with our jobs and with our, our families and, and with our friends. We're too busy. Consequently, it's no wonder that those in the church, you and me, know so little about the Lord or his will for our lives. Few of us. Listen intently as we should. We live like the world the week through and show up on Sunday to to play churchianity. To do the religious thing. Billy Sunday had a a unique wit about him. Uh, I don't know if you know Billy Sunday's story. He was a professional baseball player. He played hard in the field and then... When they weren't on the field playing baseball, they played hard in the bar. Pretty good drinkers. One day, he and his team were coming out of a bar, and there was a street preacher on the street. 
And something that guy said smacked Billy Sunday. And he accepted the Lord. But, but he had a unique wit. If you've not read the story, you've got to read his story. It's, it, it's wonderful. But he had a unique wit about him, a, a unique way of saying things. Here's what he said. Merely going into the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you an automobile. What a great message for us today, huh? We who, know, who so nonchalantly may be guilty of making that same mistake. James wrote this, what we're studying, to you and me as believers. He's writing to the church. He's writing to churches that are populated by those who very well may be deceived. And in case you don't get James's point here, he gives us an illustration. He wants to make sure that we get what he's talking about. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word <clears throat> but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I don't know, some of us, that might be a good thing. I don't know. But forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but, but doing it, he will be, what? Do you see that word? Blessed in what he does. There are those who look in the mirror, and I suppose they're like Fonzie. They go, hey, Paul's going to scold me for an old illustration. But they look, and they go away, and they don't do anything about what they see. They show up, and they leave the same way. There are those who are like that in the church, aren't they? Sunday after Sunday, they show up. And the change is only marginal. But there are those who realize. They, they look at themselves in the mirror of the Word. And they realize they need a change. They need to make corrections. They're changed by the reflection of God's Word. You see, God's Word was given to change us. Salvation is all about change. Jesus came to die to do something about our sin. He died to free us from the sin that condemns us and the sin that controls us. He died to transform our lives with his blessed truth. The question for us takes us right back to where James started, doesn't it? Are you receptive? Allowing God to work his ends in your life, obeying what he brings to your attention? You may be wondering what this obedience looks like uh, 
what God expects from you. Well, James doesn't leave you hanging here either. Look at the third paragraph, beginning in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious, there we are. That's you and me, isn't it? That's us. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, there's that word again, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Boy, I tell you, James' theology is pointed. He pulls no punches. It's a theology that comes right down here to where we live. James brings up three things here. This is not a complete list. Uh, There are other things he could have brought up, but uh, these are evident in the lives of those who are playing religious games. First, there must be consistency in our tongues. The tongue is a, uh, a barometer of who we are. James writes that we need to uh, bridle our tongues. We need to keep a tight rein on our tongues. So the question is, do you or do you not keep your tongue in control? Verse 26, if anyone considers it, himself religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. I suppose when most of us read this, the idea of profanity comes to mind, but that's not really what James is talking about here. He's using tongue in a larger context. Things like gossip, things like lying, things like disrespect, things like rebelliousness, vanity. Those times when our, our mouths expose a resident godlessness within us. Yes, the tongue is a barometer. It shows where our hearts are. It's an outward evidence of the inward truth. What is your tongue? Show about you, who you are inside here. Second, there must be consistency in our concern for others. We have a responsibility, verse 27, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. You see, a religion devoid of uh, social conscience isn't a godly religion at all. Now, I know this rubs fundamentalists the wrong way. It rubs evangelicals the wrong way. There are those who participate in what's called the the social gospel. But it's the only religion that the Lord accepts as pure and faultless a religion which is actively concerned about those in need. Is this something that factors into your faith, your church, your religion? 
caring for the need of others, helping needy people. It's so often missed in the church, and especially evangelical churches. We were so concerned in a zeal to present the world with the gospel that we failed to provide for their needs, their food, their clothing, their housing. Not many evangelical churches reach out to the needy of their community. It used to. I can tell you the historical story behind it. It used to, but it doesn't do it so anymore. Why would James put such stress on social concern? Why shouldn't we just let uh, uh, churches in the social gospel do it? Why shouldn't we just let the government do it? Well, because functionally, it, it too is part of the redemptive process. Others won't care how much we know about God until they know how much we care about them. Do others, needy people, know how much you care about them? Third, there must be consistency in our personal holiness. Verse 27, towards the end. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This, this draws us right back to verse 21, doesn't it? Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and accept the word of God planted in you, which can save you. To the unconverted, all religions look the same. They all possess the same warm, innate goodness. They're all made up of the same platitudes. But think about this. All colors lose their distinctiveness in the dark. You can't tell reds and blues and greens. All colors lose their distinctiveness in the dark. Same thing's true with religion. All religions look the same to those who are in the dark. Only by being filled with heavenly light are those similarities dispelled. Do you recognize the difference that's offered in Jesus Christ? He's not just uh, one of many who promote a, a lifestyle gained by religious platitudes. He is the Savior sent by the Holy God of Heaven to redeem the world from its sin and decay. Do you recognize the difference, the the radical, life-changing difference? Or do you just want to play the the religious game, a little churchianity each week? Are you in the light, the heavenly light? Or are you still caught up in darkness? Verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral decay and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Those last four words, they're problematic, aren't they? Which can save you. So much of the time believers live unsaved lives. Now, how can that be? Believers living unsaved lives. Either you're saved or you're not saved, right? 
So how can James say this? The answer has to do with an incomplete understanding of salvation. You see, you're not only saved from the the penalty of sin. We're also being saved from the power of sin. The one is justification, the other is sanctification. I was saved from the penalty of sin, that's past tense salvation and uh, justification. I am being saved from the power of sin. This is present tense salvation. It's sanctification. There's also a future tense salvation, glorification, where we're actually saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Those are the three tenses of salvation. It's here in this present tense that believers so often fail. It's it's here they so often lose out. It's here, sanctification, that we lose the blessings that the Lord wants to pour into our lives. Believers think, hey, I'm I'm saved, that sells it. I can live like hell. I hope you understand I'm not cussing. Those are the two options. We can live like heaven, or we can live like hell. Now, there might be a kind of a sliding rule on it. But it's true. I hope you understand that salvation right here and now we participate in. We have an incomplete understanding of salvation. We think I've arrived. I can live as I want. I can do as I want. I I can be whoever I want. Wrong. Salvation was given to change us. If we didn't need to be changed, we wouldn't need salvation to start out with. We need to let God's word have its way in our lives. Let me give you a battle plan for winning the war of this present tense salvation. First, get into the word. Second, get into prayer. Third, get into the church. I'm not being overly simplistic here. Get into the Word. Allow it to to transform you with its truth. Study it. Meditate on it. Grow in it. Take hold of the Word until it takes hold of your life. Go to prayer. Enact with God about the struggles you have. Prayer, Prayer is not a religious thing. It's a relational thing. Write that down. Prayer is not a religious thing. It's a relational thing. Get real with God. Your sins, the the things that hold you down, talk to God about it. He doesn't want to hear religious platitudes. He wants to talk about who we are and what his word is doing in our lives. Ask him to to lift us out of the, the muck and mire of our lives and allow him to bring his blessing into our lives. And the church, God's people, the third thing, Jesus died to give you the church. Have you ever thought of the church that way? He died to give us brothers and sisters. A support group of holy consequences. We all battle the same things. I 
I know a lot of times people walk here with, walk in with religious smug faces, you know, I'm, I'm religious and I'm here to worship. But the fact is, we're all bogged down in the same world, in the same sins, with the same thoughts and the same battles. doesn't matter whether it's me or anybody else in this room. We all battle sin in our lives. Again, the church isn't a religious thing. I know we think of it that way, but it's not. It's a relational thing. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And if the church is not fulfilling that duty, we have failed. We've got to talk real about our lives. What's going on? What's troubling us? What's tripping us up? By the way, the word isn't a religious thing either. I know it's his holy word. I I know all of that, but it too is a relational thing. It was given to change us. It was given to bring us closer and closer in our relationship to our Lord. It was given to bring us closer and closer in our relationships with one another. And we're right back to where we started, aren't we? Receptivity. How receptive are you of the word? can be said of prayer, the church. But James is talking about the word here, isn't he? Are you being saved by a holy life from a godless world? If you are, it demands that you give God's word a, a preeminent place in your life. A place of importance. A place over all of the other places in your life. <clears throat> Tim Keller, when he moved his family to New York City to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he he asked his wife to grant him three years of of long hours and, and hard work. And after that, he promised that things would change. Kathy agreed to Tom's request. But when they came to that three-year mark, uh, Tim asked for three more months. Just, just a couple more months. Still, the months flew by, one after the other, and no change. And although Kathy was uh, patient and, and restrained, she, she felt she had to get Tim's attention. Tim tells the story this way. One day I came home from work. Uh, it was a nice day outside, and I noticed that the door to our uh, apartment's balcony was open. Just as I was taking off my jacket, I I heard a a smashing noise coming from the balcony. In another couple seconds, I, I heard another one. I walked out onto the balcony, and to my surprise, saw Kathy sitting on the floor. She had a hammer, and next to her was a stack of our wedding china. And on the ground were the shards of two broken saucers. What are you doing, I asked. She looked up and said, you aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these hours, you're going to destroy this family. I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. 
This is what you're doing. And as she said that, she brought down the hammer on a third saucer. Crash. I sat down trembling, tells Tim Keller. I thought she had snapped. I'm listening, I'm listening, I said. As we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser-focused, but not out of rage or out of control emotionally. She spoke calmly but forcefully. Her arguments were the same. They had been months before, but I realized how deluded I had been. There would never be a convenient time to cut back. I was uh, addicted to the level of productivity I had achieved. She saw me listening for the first time. And we hugged. Finally, I inquired, when I first came out here, I I thought you were having an emotional meltdown. How, How did you get control of yourself so fast? With a grin, she answered, uh, it was no meltdown. You see these three saucers? I nodded. I have no cups for them. The cups have been broken for years. I had three saucers to spare. I'm glad you sat, I'm glad you sat down before I had to break any more. What does the Lord have to do to get your and my attention? He's speaking. Are you listening? Father, we come before you. We come before you as your people. We come before you recognizing our need of your word. I pray, Father, we wouldn't just be playing religious games. That we would seek your word, its power, the way it can change our lives, Father. And I pray we would do so in a humble way. Father, I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.